This is an Our Savior Evangelical Free Church podcast. To learn more, visit osefc.org. Let's get going in here this morning. I'm so grateful to be in the book of Colossians chapter 1. We're going to be in verses 15 through 18, just a few short verses this morning. But by way of introduction, let me just say this. I I don't think I've ever been so intimidated to preach a passage of Scripture as I am this morning. And I mean that. I don't think in, in my entire, I've been doing this a long time now, I don't think I've ever been so intimidated to preach Colossians 1 to you. This is a magnificent piece of writing, but that's not why I'm so in, intimidated. It's not the, the prose or the style. It's because of what it presents. Colossians 1, where we're going to be reading this morning, verse 15 is just a brief display of the the most glorious, most beautiful, most powerful thing, not just that is, but that could ever be. It is impossible this morning for me to exaggerate the glory that we're going into. Of all that could ever be, this is the most majestic. So this is a parade of the glory, the majesty of the matchless Christ that we find in the middle of Colossians 1. And I'm, I'm quite certain, let me just be very blunt, I'm quite certain I'm not up to the task of delivering this to you with any kind of justice. And I, and I don't say that, it's not a false sense of humility, it's not trying to draw some kind of praise out from you or some you know, compliments out from you later on after we're done in here. I really mean I, I don't think I, I'm up to the task. I've just kind of sat with this profound sense of inadequacy this week as, as I've prepared. And my prayer has, has just been that out of kind of the meager offering that I'm, I'm about to make, that God would stir in each of us worship. So here's my plan. I'm going to worship up here for about the next 30, 35 minutes. And I'm going to invite you into that worship where you're seated. And then I'm going to hope that God would stir in all of us such a worship that we would continue to worship and overflow with praise as we leave this place. So this is just a worship body. We're going to continue in worship. That's all we're going to do. That's all I think we can do before this. And so when you think about Jesus Christ in, in, by way of preparation... I believe that you should think and even feel across a broad spectrum. And so on kind of one maybe side of that spectrum, I hope you know that Jesus Christ is kind and he is gentle. And he's kind and gentle toward you. He's not just kind and gentle toward other people, more deserving people, better people. He's kind and gentle toward you. There's, there's a story in Mark's gospel where a woman who has been bleeding for 12 years uh, kind of makes her way through a crowd. She wants to get close to Jesus who's walking through and she believes that just, if she could just touch Jesus, even just touch the hem of his garment, she'll be healed of her dozen-year bleed. And when she touches him, 
Jesus, it says that Jesus felt power go out of him and he stops and he wants to know, well, who touched me? And his disciples say that the crowd is massing all around you. Everybody's touching you. He said, no, I, I felt power go out. Who has touched me? And this, and this woman kind of meekly comes forward and, and, and says, it, it was me who touched you. But, but Jesus immediately comforts her. He's not angry. He's not upset. He's tender toward her, compassionate, and she's healed. That's how Jesus often is with people. There are many times when people are afraid or he sees them and they're tired or they feel beaten down. And what Jesus says to them is, take heart. By that he means be encouraged or have courage. And his reason is, is that he's with them, he's near to them. So when Jesus is close, that's a good thing. But like C.S. Lewis wrote of Aslan in the Chronicles of Narnia, just because it's a good thing doesn't mean Jesus is always a safe thing. So while he's on earth, here's another part of that that spectrum of of what do we think when we think of Jesus. Uh, Jesus commands creation a number of times. To the point that, that it scares the people that he's with. They're frightened. They're, who can do this? What he's doing. So they recognize he, he's not quite tame. He's not quite safe. Uh, Jesus doesn't just contend with demons. He, he overpowers them in a way that, that lets you know it's not a fair fight. Like he overpowers demons without even giving them his full attention. So in Matthew... Uh, 8.16, it says that Jesus uh, spent an evening, just kind of spent this evening casting out demons, many demons out of people with nothing more than a word. That's all it says. A bunch of people, many people who are demon-possessed came, Jesus said a little something, and they're freed. (coughs) Actually, later in, in Matthew 8, Jesus frees a man with a single word. Two men. He feeds two men with a single word. Uh, it's, so it's a strange thing that happens. Um, he meets these two demon-possessed men. And, and without saying anything, Jesus doesn't say anything, the demons who are, are possessing these two men beg Jesus that if he's going to cast them out, he would cast them into this group of nearby pigs. Strange story, but just go with me for a second on it. And so all Jesus says, single word, he just says, Go. And what happens is, is the demons are, are so frazzled, they're so out of sorts that they, they go into these pigs and they make the pigs run down a hill and into the sea and they all die. Now, it, it's kind of a precursor, it's a picture to what the book of Revelation shows us later where Jesus will throw Satan into a lake of fire, not even after a, a kind of a tussle, he just tosses him in. So Jesus is mighty as well. Uh, the book of Revelation is actually a great place to show just the spectrum of who Jesus is. He's gentle, but that doesn't mean he's soft. doesn't mean he's certainly not weak. So in Revelation 19, Jesus invites everyone who calls on his name to celebrate at a supper, marking the beginning of, of his kingdom and reign forever and ever and ever. At the end of the supper, Jesus leads the army of heaven against what are called the the armies of the kings of this world. And for the battle, 
He mounts uh, a pure white horse. He dons a robe dipped in blood. And a sharp sword comes out of his mouth. It's a military picture, but there's not a military battle. People think, well, there's a battle. No, there's, there's actually no battle in Revelation 19. You can go back and read it this afternoon. What's implied by Jesus mounting a horse, dipping a robe in blood, and a sword coming out of his mouth is there's no one who can stand against Christ, died and resurrected, and he commands everything simply by his word. All that exists is subject to the word of Christ. So all that by way of introduction. There's a way to know about Jesus without really knowing him. It's possible to get lost in kind of the esteem language of the scriptures, particularly in Colossians 1. The theological term for kind of what we're doing here is Christology. Can even stand back in awe of who Jesus is, yet at the same time forget that the true life is found in Jesus. We live in Jesus. And Jesus can be personal to you. The one who mounts the horse, wearing a robe dipped in blood, with a sword coming out of his mouth, wants you to be his friend. And that's why God has given us this letter. This letter to the Colossians, the verses preceding this, say that we can know the will and we can walk in a way. We can be pleasing to God. Not just tolerated by God. Pleasing to him. Now the only way that that happens is through repentance, faith, and then life in Jesus Christ. And we have here just a beautiful picture of who this Jesus that would come near to us, that would desire to befriend us, and would desire to save us is. And so let's just read. This is one of the most precious gifts in all of the scriptures for understanding who the Son of God is. But let's also see here, not just, not just a glorious picture, but also that, that God in here bids us come. Come to Jesus, hope in him, be found in him, have your joy in him. That's what this is all for. So if you have your Bible, Colossians 1, I'm going to read from verse 15 to 18. It says that he, that's Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he's the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. So there are at least four ways here that Jesus is glorified. Probably so many more. I just want to take four of them. And from these four things that he is, that says that he is, 
<clears throat> Let me give us four reasons to find our hope and input all of our trust. Have all of our faith in Jesus. So four reasons. Uh, first, nothing else is like Jesus. There's nothing like him. So he alone is worthy of worship. He's the only thing truly worthy of eternal glory and worship because nothing else is like him. Uh, second, everything starts with Jesus. So he's the master over all. And so if we need something and he's promised to love us, we can be sure that he'll give it to us. Third, Jesus holds everything together. So he's always enough. He's always enough. He always has enough. Fourth, last, he's the head of the church. Which means that he leads us into life with him forever. Jesus leads us to life. So those four things, there's nothing like him. Everything starts with him. He holds everything together. And he's the head of the family of God. So first, there's nothing else like Jesus. Look again at verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Now this is an an astonishing claim, and, and it's true, every word of it. Jesus Christ is God and fleshed. Uh, One of the reasons that Paul, who wrote this letter, wrote Colossians, was to help them sort out what teaching about Jesus was true and what was false. So there's false teaching beginning to infiltrate or kind of swirl around the Colossian Christians, and Paul wants to make some things clear. And God's word in the Bible, reading the Bible, is still the primary way that we determine what is true and what is false. So it's easy for people to make claims like this, to say uh, all religions are basically the same. You know, they teach you how to be a good person and kind of how to, to live a life that's pleasing to whatever God that religion worshipped worships. So people, people might even say that most of the world's religions are kind of similar in that they have a, you know, kind of a central figure and all those figures, they, they sort of follow a pattern or a, a type. If you think that, if you hear that, if you're confronted with that, you wonder about that, read this. These verses other places that say the same thing in the Bible run contrary to that in a way that could not be more different, could not be overstated. John's gospel says that the word, that's Jesus Christ, became flesh and dwelt among us. Hebrews 1.3 says Jesus is the exact imprint of God's nature. So it's also common to find people who just kind of, you know, throw their hands up and say, you know, we can't even know what's true or what's right or what's good. Because even if there's a God, we can't know, you know, anything about him. We don't even know which God's the right God, which religion gets it right. It's probably not any of the religions that are really getting it right. So really, we can't know anything about what's true. You certainly can't see God. You can't talk to God. Folks, that's not true. If you know Jesus, you know God. 
if you want to know God and you don't know Jesus, get to know Jesus and you will come to know God. If you were to have been alive while Jesus was on earth, you could have pointed at him when he was walking by and said, there, there is God. If you heard him speak, you would have said, I have heard with my own ears the voice of God. If you were to shake his hand, you could have shaken the hand of God. If you want to know God, he is knowable by getting to know Jesus. No other religion makes this claim. This is absolutely unique in all the world to claim, not just, a lot of religions claim you know about God, but nothing claims that you can know him personally, that he became one of us. Like this claim from Colossians 1 and other places. And here it says that, that Jesus is the firstborn of creation. It doesn't mean that Jesus was created. Paul uses the term firstborn here to convey the glory of Jesus. Uh, especially in the ancient world, the firstborn son was the prized heir. He occupied the, the greatest place of honor in the next generation of the family. He was the one who would, who would lead the, the family into the future. And so the father gladly passes his riches, all that he has amassed in his life, on to his son, the heir. The heir received a larger portion of the inheritance and assumed the greater responsibility in the family. And so that's what Paul is doing is he's saying, not that Jesus was created, but that he is the firstborn, the heir, the prized son of God. And so this is with our God. So our God is one in three persons. Before the foundation of the world, what happened was the Godhead covenanted together to redeem humanity, and the plan was that the Son would become man. And in doing that, that the Son was uniquely positioned to pay the penalty for sin through death. And become the one who now brings people to God. In the Old Testament, the work of bringing people to God was the work of the priest. And as God established the priesthood, his first ideal was that the firstborn sons of every family would be known as as priests or intercessors between God and man. So in other words... When God originally set this up, it was the firstborn's responsibility to focus the family on God. And that is what Jesus does for our family, the family of believers today. He brings us to, he focuses on, he intercedes between us and God. He's the firstborn in our spiritual family, in our church and in the church. And he brings us to God. Lots of things in, in this world will, will promise it and try to give you meaning and joy. But none of them are like Jesus. None of them are him. There's only one of him. 
So don't give what is rightfully his to anything or anyone else. Jesus alone is worthy of your worship. When you give your life to him, he will bring you into the family of God and he will keep you there forever. But when you put something else in that place, that that ultimate place, the absolute place, when we give our worship to anyone else, that other thing, that other person, they're going to lead us too. When you worship something, it will lead you. You are led by what you worship. But it won't lead you to God. It will lead you to something less. And at some point, wherever you've allowed it to take you, you will find it to be shallow and unsatisfying and it will leave you wanting. Jesus is the only one who can receive your worship and turn it into a fountain of joy forever. And the reason is that Jesus is not only God, When he became man, he became the fullest expression of humanity as well. So when we look at Jesus, when we worship Jesus, when we grow in likeness or an imitation of Jesus, we're moving more in the direction of being human, not less. Becoming like Jesus won't take away your humanity, it will increase it. You won't lose yourself. You, look at, hear me on this well. You will never lose yourself worshiping Jesus. You will find yourself as you worship Jesus. If you are, it, it's new agey to say, I want to do me. I want to be me. Folks, the way to be you fully, unconditionally, unreservedly, in the, the fullest expression of everything that you were created to be, is to worship Jesus. You find yourself in him. Second. Second way Jesus is glorified here is by saying that everything starts with Jesus. Verse 16. For by him all things were created in heaven and earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions, rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. So this is another reason we know that that calling Jesus the firstborn of creation doesn't mean that he himself was created. Uh, John 1, 3 says, All things were made through him and without him. Get how this is? This is very clunky, but it's clunky on purpose. And without him was not anything made that was made. Kind of a weird translation. Kind of a herky-jerky way of saying that in English, but I think it was done on purpose. Without him was not anything made that was made. Maybe poorly worded, but it leaves no doubt. Jesus was there before the beginning. And the reason that's so important is because it slots everything else under Jesus and the rest of the Godhead. There's the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, who are eternally existent, holy, perfectly happy as the triune God, and out of their joy and and fellowship together, then they create. 
And not just create this world, beautiful and glorious as it is, but they create everything. If you've ever wondered what all this is for, why am I here? You know, these big questions. Why am I here? Why are any of us here? Why is the rest of the universe here? The answer is at the end of verse 16. It all exists for Jesus. All things were created through him and for him. That's why we worship. But as we see these life-altering truths, we have to do our best to let the full weight of them come to, to bear on us. It's easy to just, again, see these things, hear them and go, well, it's wonderful without letting them penetrate deep into who we are. Uh, sometimes our, our worship of Jesus looks like this. You know, Jesus, you're, you're so great and, and glorious, yet you, you choose to save me, and then we kind of say, thank you for saving me. Now, that's not wrong. It's not wrong in any way. But what we're seeing here is even the saving work of Christ, his redemptive work in our lives, incredible, gracious, freeing as that is, that's not the main reason we worship Jesus. It's certainly not the only reason we worship Jesus. We worship Jesus more foundationally than that because we were created for him and all of this was created by him, for him, through him. So praise his name that he chooses to save. But it will expand our worship to hear this next part. Praise his name that he chooses to save. But even without that, we still owe him everything. We still owe him all of our worship. Praise God, though, he does save. In his kindness, he adds blessing upon blessing to us. And so we should trust him in all of our circumstances and, and with whatever we need. Some of the hardest parts of our lives are going to come as we wonder why God ha has us in a certain place. Why are we in the midst of a trial? Why did he bring this into my life? Why has he withheld something that seems so good, that I've prayed for for so long, that if he did it, I would use it to praise his name? Why has he withheld that from me? Part of knowing him, as we do, is trusting that wherever he has us, he has us there under his power. He has all dominion. He has all authority. We're here because of him. As Paul promises at the end of Romans 8, God has not done all this in your life. God has not done all this in creation in vain. As Christians, we can be sure that God has done all this and he has saved us. And what it says there at the end of Romans 8 is if God is for us, then it doesn't matter what's against us. And if God's plan is to redeem us, and he did that through the ultimate cost of his own son, we shouldn't worry that he will withhold from us anything that we're in need of. And so if we need it, God will give it. It can be so difficult to be in a place of wondering why God hasn't given it. Or why we're in the midst of some place 
lived faithfully to God? Why, why are we here? There should be great comfort in knowing that everything starts with Jesus. He reigns masterfully over it all. So wherever we are, we can trust in him that that's where we're meant to be in his will and under his sovereignty. There's a third thing here. Everything's held together by Jesus, verse 17, quickly. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. So right now, your life is being upheld by Jesus. It's, it's not just your, your skeleton, you know, your bones and, and your muscles and your skin kind of holding it all together. Jesus is doing that in an even more profound sense. The most important thing in your life right now and at every second is what Jesus is doing. So do you see why Colossians 1 is such an important part of proclaiming the truth of who Jesus is? He's not just a good teacher. He's not just a spiritual leader. I would dare to say he's not even just a savior. To suggest that he is anything less than supreme over all robs him of the glory to his name. Everything is held together in him. I get why somebody wouldn't want to worship a low Jesus. You know, a Jesus whose kind of biggest contributions to the world are maybe some memorable quotes, feel-good sayings, time he was nice to a hurt person. But that's not who Jesus is. That, that, that kind of a low little Jesus who isn't much, that's not who he really is. He's the one who holds everything together. He's the one that makes demons shudder, and he rules the world. That Jesus is more than enough. He never fails or disappoints. You can be vulnerable with him because he knows you better than you know yourself. And you can be sure that he really does love you because he is intimately aware of the worst parts of you. And he still invites you to come and be his friend. So Jesus is called the friend of sinners because he gives grace to anybody who wants it. I promise you he has more than enough grace. More than enough love for you. He holds you together. Do you think for a moment that he doesn't know what you did that one time? He's holding all of this together. Do you think for a second that he doesn't know the darkness of some of your thoughts? The pride, the anger, the bitterness, the jealousy? You think he doesn't know that? He knows. He knows it all. And not only does he continue to sustain you, he continues to say, come and partake of my grace. Come, be a part of my family. Come to me. He's more than enough for us. Last one, number four. Jesus is the head of the church. Verse 18, and he is the head of the church, or the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. So Paul's using the, the word firstborn in two slightly different ways in these verses. Uh, they both actually come into play here. So in verse 15, remember, he's the firstborn of creation. 
which we said means that he receives the, the inheritance and he leads the, the family of God. Here, firstborn from the dead means that he was resurrected from the grave after the cross. And he can lead you to resurrection life as well. So we're here, our church is here, we've gathered this morning, because and for Jesus. But it's not just this morning. It's not just this church, this physical location. If we understand this even a little bit, everything we do, our whole lives, should be about him. That's what it means for him to be preeminent. That means he gets first place. Our lives only make sense. They will only be right when Jesus comes first. I think it's possible that there are people, even in here, who haven't felt right within themselves for a long time. Maybe they haven't felt right with God for quite a while. Maybe you've never felt quite right with yourself or with God. And I would ask if if that resonates with you. Is Jesus first in your life? Is he first in your heart? Is he first in your mind? Is he first in your affections and your will? Is he the center of your life? If he's not first, everything else will be out of order. We were created and God ordered things in the right order of things is for Jesus to be one and everything else to come in some fashion after that. Jesus said, seek first the kingdom of heaven and all things will be added to you. Along those same lines, I would say, seek Jesus first and then everything else will kind of fall in where it needs to be. As a pastor, when I talk with people, people are concerned about things, the real, real things. My number one question, what I always want to get at is, is Jesus first in this person's life? If Jesus isn't first, whatever we do is not really going to be that helpful. But if Jesus is first, I have every hope and every belief that we actually don't have that much work left to do. Because when he's first, everything has a way of falling in where it needs to be after that. And the reason that Jesus is the head of the church is because he's the one who created us, he's the one who redeems us by his blood, and he will be the one who endures us. We're not here because of our work. We're here because of his. And I I mean that all the way through. We exist because we were made in him and through him. We're held together by him and we're saved and we're secured in him. It's not by what you or I have done or, or can do that we've come. And that's a good thing because if we were here on our own, we'd be in big, big trouble. But Jesus has promised to do all these things and Jesus never breaks a promise. And so if you wonder, how am I gonna make it? What is coming up for me? Maybe there's something, the distant future and the near future, that you just wonder, 
will this overcome me? I want you to see the big flashing arrow pointing at Colossians 1 right now. You don't have to make it. You aren't being asked to carry your life. We are being told right here that Jesus has already made it. He was before everything, all that exists, including you in your life and the trajectory of your life, is the way it is because Jesus wills that it is. And when you're in him, you live the life that he bought for you. And you will live with him forever. Jesus is the firstborn from the dead. That's incredible for at least two reasons. The first is that it's proof that the dead can be raised. If you wonder, can God really do that? Yes, he can. And he'll do it for you too in Jesus. And that's the second promise. It's the promise that everybody who is in Christ will be raised. Everybody. Not just the varsity squad. Not just the people who pray real hard. Everybody in Christ. It does not say Jesus was born from the dead. Like he's the only one. That word firstborn is so important because it means there's going to be more. It implies there's so many, many more. And so if life feels hopeless, if it feels aimless, if it feels life sometimes feels a little bit like death, know that when you come to Jesus, when you're with him, it's not hopeless. It's the opposite. It's life. The way to have life in him is to make him preeminent, make him first in your life. The greatest news ever is that the God who made everything and sustains everything became man in order that he could redeem a people and make everything right one day. And he wants to know you and he wants you to make him the center of your life. Not because he's some kind of egomaniac, but because he knows that if you truly want to live, that's the way to do it. He is the way to true life. So, so he offers himself to you and says, all that I have is yours. Jesus is the heir, and we become heirs with Christ when we're him. And my prayer for each of us, all of us this morning, is that we would take that offer and know that life. Let's pray together. God, thank you for the Son becoming man, that in you we might have life forever and ever and ever. May you be first, preeminent in all we are, everything we think, in all we do, in our entire and over our entire lives. In the name of the matchless Christ we pray. Amen. Amen and amen. Our Savior is a congregation located in Wheeling, Illinois. Our vision can be summed up in four words. Building community, bringing Christ. To learn more about this vision and our hope for our neighborhood, visit us online at osefc.org.